This is the Creative Coaching Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lopez. Hope you enjoy this podcast. It's set up and designed for coaches, leaders, and influencers to share their stories and inspire others to share their stories as well. That we can all learn together as a community and get better every day. So thank you for listening. Here's season two. Today's guest is Rob Lanier. Coach Lanier is the head coach at Georgia State. He also is the creator and curator of CoachSpeak.net. We talked to him today about not being territorial or insecure, to be a professional recruiter, to create a collective vision, and not to let self-doubt change you. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and you look to get better every day. Welcome to the podcast, Coach. Glad to be here, Mike. Thanks for having me. Coach Lanier, thank you for taking some time out of your day. I know you're busy. You got all kinds of things going on. And so we just really appreciate you spending some time with us now. I'm going to start off the podcast like I do every podcast, coaching that. How are you introduced to the game of basketball coming out of Buffalo, New York? Um, well, you know, I, I, I grew up in uh, on the east side of Buffalo mm-hmm. in, uh, in a housing uh, complex called the Ferry Grider Homes. Okay. And uh, what's unique about um, you know project housing yeah is that uh, you generally get like every age level of young people all in one you know relatively close area growing up together so you know it almost like being in a, in a school that's K through 12 you know what I mean yeah. You, yeah. you got people in the neighborhood that are your age when you're really young elementary, middle school, high school, et cetera. So you get exposed to, uh, uh, you know, all kinds of things. And, um, and you also have people who are really talented in a community like that. Yeah. Uh, athletically and otherwise. And, um, in, in that little uh, area where I, I lived, our housing complex, there was a, there was a basketball, a basketball court with two full courts. And um, it was uh, it was a place where we congregated and played, and um, there were older guys older than me at the time that were really talented and athletic, and there was just always something cool about being a hooper. Yeah, you know, as long as I could remember, there was something unique about uh, the ability to handle the basketball and shoot the ball and the trash talk that went on on the court. And of all the things that were going on in the community, I was drawn to that and some of the people who had exhibited a talent for it, you know? Uh, And sometimes when you're really young, you know, there could be a guy who's in high school and you're eight years old and the guy is almost larger than life. Some guy, when guys, the way a certain guy moves or shoots the ball. And so when I was really young, at eight years old, I was drawn to it and I could already handle the basketball pretty good. Mm-hmm. And then when I went to school, um, in Buffalo, uh, we had a legendary coach by the name of Romeo McKinney. He was the head coach at South Park high school, but he was the phys ed teacher at my elementary school. And so when I would go to gym class, he had taken to me because, uh, I had, I guess exhibited, you know, a, a knack for handling and shooting the ball. So he would have everybody else playing kickball and he would pull me over to the side and be working with me on my game. And he was another guy who's really charismatic and 
yeah. really confident man. And, and uh, the fact that uh, he had an aura around the school and the fact that he had taken an interest in me had kind of reinforced in me when I was young that I kind of was on to something. And that reputation kind of grew around my neighborhood that uh, for a young age, I would play with the older guys and such. So it, it started then. You know, yeah. you know, seven, eight, nine years old between school and the neighborhood. Um, it was, uh, you know, I, I had gained some traction in the game. Yeah. So developmentally, like as a, as a, just as a child, never mind basketball, you're, you're associating people with the game, with people that you admire, people that, like you said, have an aura. I mean, that's a great way to be introduced to the game of basketball because sometimes, you know, we're just kind of left to our own devices as kids and just, you know, figure out what we want to do as far as uh, hobbies or whatever. And right. yours were associated with people, people who uh, meant something to you, who you looked up to. Like, that's a fantastic way to be introduced to the game, man, because it really infuses a passion, if you will, and good times, quite honestly. Yeah, it's a, it's a blessing because, uh, you know, where I grew up, there was plenty of other things that I could have been drawn to. Yeah. So I didn't, choose, I didn't choose what I was drawn to. Um, I was drawn to, you know, obviously there, there were people who were charismatic and cool who were into things that, that I never got into, but I did admire them yeah. in, in a way. But, uh, but I wasn't going to get into what they were into. Yeah. Basketball really attracted me. And then those that were good at it, there was just something really cool uh, you know, about that. So, yeah, uh, I, I was fortunate. I was blessed that, uh, that I made decisions based on what I was drawn to. And I happened to be drawn to basketball and I was, I had a, a pension for uh, performing well academically in school. I liked it. I, I, I enjoyed the positive reinforcement I got from my teachers and my mom and people in the neighborhood when you had those stars on your report card, you know, when you were small, <laughs> we used to have that blue, the blue report card that folds over and, and uh, all, all of those things were things that at a, as, as a young age, I, I, you know, I valued, I wanted to do well. Yeah, no, that's fantastic coach. I, I like what you're saying though, about, uh, you know, I, I grew up on a, on a pretty tough part of San Antonio and when I was growing up, yeah, there was, there was cats that I saw out there that were, hustling or doing something that wasn't uh i would say just savory <laughs> it just yeah. uh, but yet they had the look they were charismatic like you said they had that swag they had the jordans they had everything you know what i mean and yet mm-hmm. i liked the, what they were wearing but i didn't like what they were doing you know and so it was always yeah. kind of like what you're saying is like in, in those environments there you have to i guess gravitate towards the right people and, yeah, that are doing the right mm-hmm. things and you know, that's just really important. I think anybody listening can, can understand that and help kids that, you know, need to be uh, kind of moved along that come from those environments because that's, it's not always the case, man. Sometimes we can work hard with kids when they're with us and they go back to their environment and things just, everything we've worked on just gets shot and uh, sure. sometimes literally. And so those are the things that I think are really important for coaches listening. Now, as a player, coach, what was your experience like? Um, you know, just developmentally, like going back to that time when I was young, there was a, a place called the uh, Bailey and Dope Boys and Girls Club. Um, the, you know, Boys and Girls Clubs were a really big part of my development. And at the Bailey and 
Dope Boys and Girls Club, the director of the club was a guy by the name of Jerry Rowe. And uh, my best friend and I would go there, and it was other guys our age, and we competed against them. We stood out. And uh, Jerry made the recommendation to me and my, my best friend, Gordon German. He said to us that if you really want to play against the best competition in the city, you need to go to the Maston Boys and Girls Club. Mm. Um, we, were, we were 10 years old at the time. And we walked everywhere. If it was miles, we went. You know, we, wow. we, uh, we went to the store and got something to drink. We got our basketball, and we went wherever we thought we would have a chance to, to play against the best. And uh, so we went to the, the, the Maston Boys and Girls Club within a matter of days of Jerry making that recommendation. His, his younger brother, Lester Rowe, uh, around that time was already in college playing at West Virginia where he was the Atlantic 10 Player of the Year. Wow. And so when we walked into the Maston Boys and Girls Club, it was, you know, I used the word aura earlier, but it was, it was like we had reached the Mecca. Yeah. You know, um, the environment inside of that building and the black men who were in there and their presence uh, and the standards that they had created inside the building, yeah. competitively, conduct-wise, respect. You know, there was a there was a level of integrity in that building and a, and in the standard of competition that you had to meet. That really, I, I, everything uh, that I've done professionally. Um, the way I coach, what I teach, all of those values and principles go directly back to that building. Um, and the people that I met, competed against, associated with, that I'm still associated with to this day, we consider ourselves alumnus of the alumni of the, the, the Master Boys and Girls Club. And my childhood idol was a guy who I watched. In, in the Boys and Girls Club, played at University of Pittsburgh, was a parade, and McDonald's All-American. He was uh, four or five years older than me, but I got to watch him yeah. put the work in firsthand, and I saw that correlation. So so through my experiences there, I went on and had a successful uh, high school career and then went on and played four years at Division One at, at uh, St. Bonaventure University. And... Uh, uh, and then, and then, you know, got into coaching uh, shortly after my four years at St. Bonaventure. Yeah, I like what you're talking about, Coach, in the first place when you talk about walking into a, first of all, looking for competition. That's always big, I think, for young people to figure out. Like, if you're, you're winning every game. You're the best player in that gym. It's like that old adage, if you're the best player in the gym, go find another gym, right? And yeah. so, uh, and I remember doing the same as a kid. I go to the Boys and Girls Club. I go to the YMCA. We go to anywhere where we we could find competition. Uh, but you're talking about when you stepped into the Maston Boys and Girls Club, the culture that was already set. Like that's really important. I think here again, I want to emphasize that to coaches listening. Like if people walk into your gym and it's just another gym, I'm just not sure if you're doing the right things that you should be. In other in other words, you want to set a culture that's uh, almost life changing to a degree, maybe not, you know, so awestruck, but just a place where people feel like there's representation. There's uh, a sense of belonging, but a sense of challenging. Like you're going to be challenged when you walk into my gym and you're going to act right and you can have integrity and all those things. So I really like that, how you kind of painted that picture. Cause 
that's something I think all of us coaches really desire to have is when people come into our gym, they feel like, whoa, I'm, I'm some, I'm in hollowed ground and, uh, yeah. and I'm expected yeah. to have something. I can't show up with nothing. I got to have something. And I think that's really important. Now, coach, were you the type of player that you would enjoy coaching now? Uh, I, I think so. You know, uh, the, the probably as I've grown as a coach, and I've been around so many good players over the last 30 years that I'm realizing I really wasn't that good. <laughs> um, I was a Division One player. I scored double digits. Um, I was uh, I had, a, I had a, you know a high basketball IQ and decent skill. Um, you know, I, I think um, you know some of the qualities that I had, I certainly covet when I recruit. You know, in terms of work ethic and approach. Yeah. But I need guys with more ability. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I got you. you. know, but, but uh, you know, I was, I, you know, with, with with some of the players we have and some of the players I've coached, I would have been a better player because I was a true point guard. Yeah. And I, I would have been as good as the guys on the floor with me. So there's some of that that I, that I would value as a coach. But these guys are more talented. The guys I'm coaching every day are so much better than me that it's hard for me to, to, to say, well, I, you know, I'd rather have me out there. Yeah. You know? yeah so, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, I'll, I'll take the, I'll rather have the guys I, I'm coaching now. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I, I think back to just, you know, uh, 15 years ago, how, how, how much the game has changed and how these yeah. kids are so athletic. And then they're scaling up even, even more so now. Like they've got yeah. individual trainers, they've got all this stuff that, uh, we could only have hoped to have back in the day. We were just kind of going off on our own. Didn't have the internet. Didn't have nothing to really uh, look at and say, that's the path. That's the skill I'll set. I want to build. It was more like watching TV, seeing somebody in the NBA and thinking, well, I want to do that. Or watching some guy on the playground and saying, well, I want to do that. So I think that's, uh, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Because, yeah. It's, it's funny, Mike, because the, the, um, the way we play, like, you know, we play, we play at a fast pace. Yeah. And, you know, um, I've told my coaches, I, like, I don't want a floor general. If we if we have a guy who has that ability, that's good. But I want everybody to be able to score. Yeah. And uh, I'd rather have a guy that could really score the ball and, uh, and try to uh, mold him in terms of his understanding of what we're doing in our system than to have a floor general that other people don't have to guard because he's not going to look at the basket. Yeah. enough and uh and so it's like i'm telling my my staff not to recruit guys that played like me <laughs> so <laughs> that's funny yeah yeah, yeah. I, I hear what you're saying you wanted to keep it fluid you want to keep it moving and uh sometimes floor generals they like to stick the ball in their hands and make sure everybody's doing the right thing right uh, i was that same dude you know what i mean like i wanted yeah. everybody to i'll set you all up just get what you're supposed to get and wait for me yeah. you know kind of that mentality like, nah, we got to get it moving. So I hear you. Yeah. So, Coach, who or what influenced you to go into coaching? Um, I think the love of the game. Um, you know, when I was uh, – I tell this story a lot. You know, when I was a sophomore, we played at Syracuse. Mm -hmm. I don't know how old you are, Mike. but uh, Okay, so you, you, you may know these names, but – I was a sophomore in high school. 
I mean, in college, and we're playing at the Carrier Dome against Syracuse with uh, Sherman Douglas at the point. Wow. Uh, Ronnie Cycli at the five. Two pros. Uh, yeah. You got uh, Derek Coleman <laughs> at the four, who is a monster. Yeah. And then Stevie Thompson is on the wing, and whoever else they had, it didn't matter, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and I actually had 13 points and maybe four or five assists in the game and a respectable game against, yeah. you know, we went in there, we get thrown out like most teams in upstate New York go up to Syracuse and get sacrificed <laughs> in the non-conference schedule. Yeah. And I, um, and, and I had a reason to think that I had a decent game, you know, at Syracuse, you go out and score 13 points. And, you know, I'm from upstate New York, so I could feel good about that. Right. But yeah. I, after the game, I remember vividly thinking like, okay, this is what pros feel like. Yeah. This is what it feels like being on the court with pros. And even wow. though I could hold my own competitively, I'm not like those guys. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and really at that point, um, maybe subconsciously, but, but I was aware that Ronnie Cycli, Sherman Douglas, that these dudes were cut a little bit different than I was mm -hmm. athletically, skill-wise, talent-wise. If we're just going to play shirts and skins, cool. Mm -hmm. But they were going somewhere with the game that I, I wasn't uh, yeah. uh, cut to go. And so uh, I started thinking about coaching at that point. I still had love for the game. I still wanted to be around it. But I didn't think I was going to make a living yeah. playing. Yeah. And so – um, I, I started thinking about it at that time and, and, and I was uh, uh, far enough ahead academically that I only needed six credit hours uh, in the spring semester of my senior year, three hours of coursework and then another three hours from internship yeah. for my major. And so I spent the rest of that time in the spring once the season was over working on cover letters and a resume um, trying to get my foot in the door in coaching and, and, and to go to graduate school. So I, I, I kind of got into that mindset on my own based on the, you know, where I saw myself going with basketball. And so the delusion of being a pro, I think left me at an opportune time where I could really start thinking about what I wanted to do yeah. after college, because I think that's a challenge for all young people to get to this level, you have to, there's a certain commitment that it takes. And then all of a sudden you reach this uh, point where you've got to, you know, get through this threshold of what's next in life. And then a lot of us struggle at that point, athletes in general in every sport. And uh, that, that realization came to me, I think at a, at a, at a, at a healthy stage. And uh, so I was ready to move away from the game as a player, but I wanted to stay in the game. I knew that. So I started to pursue it on my own. Yeah. I like what you're saying there, coach. I mean, you got three draft, you know, first round draft picks like that showing you, Hey, here's a little self-awareness. You may not be able to hang with us on the next level. And then, you know, you talk about players that struggle to pivot. Like you're saying, it's just like to understand, like, because everybody at in the college level, their goal for the most part, some kids do if you do it because they're using the system to get a degree, which is great. Like that's, you know, you're empowering yourself at that point. 
but but dudes especially at the d1 level high d1 they're like i'm gonna go to the league i'm gonna go overseas and they have a hard time understanding when that dream's not going to come through uh pivoting like you said and it i think it's just as, as important as uh uh, you're showing them the whole menu of what there is to do in the game. It's not just about playing at the end of the day. There's all kinds of, I mean, especially now we got, we got coaches for everything. We got front front office personnel for everything. There's so much you can do in the game. And so I think it's just really important, like what you're saying to, to make that decision. And it's tough. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it's tough for them because it's a, it's a, it's a blow to the ego. It's a blow to the confidence to a degree, but then it also, I think it breathes in new life a new life, a new chapter, and, uh, you know, the excitement of that. If you have a love for the game, you can make that pivot. If you don't love the game, yeah, you may walk away and, and, and do something else great, you know. But, uh, but yeah, I appreciate you saying that because that's, that's really important. Yeah, Mike, I, I think it's about self-awareness. And, um, you know, obviously my, my pivot was into another aspect of the game that I love. Yeah. Um, but for so many guys, it, it, it's not that, and it's a, it's a tough, it's tough to find where that passion lies, what else you want to do. And some guys stay in the game or play and are talented enough to play, not because they, they love it still, it's because they really are not sure where they want to pivot to. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, so I was fortunate in that regard. And I think that's, you know, been, uh, part of the the, uh, the enjoyment of coaching is trying to strike that balance with that message to young people. Um, chase chase this if you love it, chase it. Yeah. You got a window of time where you have the physical gifts to really do something with this, and you can be more than one thing at a time. You can chase that, and you can still uh, work on who you are as a person and invest in that as well. And it doesn't have to be all or nothing. You yeah. know, you, you, there's plenty of time to invest in both. Yeah. No, that's, that's great advice. That's great counsel right there because I think more people need to hear that generally in life, quite honestly, because sometimes we only see ourselves through the lens of what we've always thought we were and never diversified our, uh, here again with the self-awareness tool, if you have in your toolbox, uh, you can see yourself as different things as uh, being viable in other areas in life. And so, yeah, I think it's really, really important. Yeah. Great stuff, coach. Now uh, your first year, you know, you were at St. Bonaventure, alma mater and all that when you started coaching, but can you recall? Actually at Niagara. Oh, Niagara. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, can you recall a memorable moment of your first time coaching where it was like, okay, I'm not a player no more. This is the real deal. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm the guy having to tell everybody what to do now, or you know, basically instruct. Was there ever a moment like that? Yeah, there were a lot of them because you know I, I started out as a GA mm -hmm. in, in 1990 uh, at Niagara University, working for a guy by the name of Jack Armstrong, and um, you know back then and, and, and to this day, for the most part. Um, at the low major level, um, you don't have the resources that you have at you know at Texas or Tennessee or Florida and some of the places I've been fortunate to be a part of. Yeah, and so uh, a lot of the responsibilities that 
that generally get delegated to an individual. You know, you have your own strength coach and an academic coordinator and all these other positions. Well, at the low major level, you don't have all of the resources to hire someone for all of those responsibilities. So as a 22-year-old graduate assistant, I was 21 when I got the job, and by the time the the, uh, semester started, I was 22. And I'm the strength coach, and I'm operating as the academic coordinator, and I'm working on a master's degree. And also back then, you can you can be on the court coaching. Yeah. So I had to set a schedule for the team for study hall. I had to check their classes to make sure they were attending classes. And in some cases, there were players on the team that were actually older than me. Wow. And then uh, we had weight training and conditioning. And so I had to put together a program, which means I had to uh, do a fair amount of due diligence to really learn how to construct and operate a strength and conditioning program safely and effectively yeah. for a, a college basketball program. And then we had study hall at night. And again, I was taking uh, uh, two classes per semester working on a graduate degree. So the responsibilities that I had constantly put me in a space where I had to draw the line between you know my age and the responsibility that uh, that I was given professionally, yeah, and so I was up against that early. And what I found is that if you really care about young people, it, much in the same way that if you know you, you might be a, a, a peer inside of a team, yeah, um, but inside of a team you might have someone who's a leader, yeah. and as a leader he gets the respect of his teammates. And so uh, in being prepared, uh, caring about uh, the young men that I was working with and uh, having a a level of understanding and knowledge and passion for what I was doing, they responded well. And, and And I fed off that. And I fed off those relationships. So it wasn't about my age. Um, I was treated like a leader the same way a leader would be with his peers, like I said, on a team. And, um, and that, and that energized me. It gave me the confidence that, that I could have some success in what I was doing. And it, uh, it lit a fire in me that, uh, that even at 22 years old, these guys are on time. Yeah. They're taking care of business. They've done what I've asked them to do. They're getting stronger in the weight room. They're getting in shape. And, uh, the, the, the coaches on the staff were looking at this young GA, like he's capable of handling what, whatever we throw at him. Um, and, and I was able to manage all of those uh, things and get a degree, and I was making $3,000 that first year. So um, yeah. so all of, all of those things early on gave me a pretty good sense of uh, uh, you know, what the possibilities could be if I, if I continued to, to invest. Yeah, I like, I like how you talked about feeding off their responses. Uh, I think sometimes as coaches, we – we forget that kind of, uh, I don't know, that energy you talked about getting from it. You were energized. Sometimes we lose that energy because we may not lose our energy as far as conducting a practice, uh, but there's this internal energy, right? This force that hits you, and then you feel like a renewed sense, a renewed sense of uh, purpose, if you will. And yeah. then all of a sudden, you know, you're rejuvenated. You're like, I'm back, you know? 
you've, you've got your groove back or whatever, right? And so I think mm -hmm. that's just really important to emphasize to coaches that are listening, like find that place where you, you're feeding off your players' responses, uh, the administration's responses if they're positive, you know. Don't let the negative ones kill you. Um, but find a way to get re-energized. Find that, that first love, if you will, back into the, to what you're doing. Because I think that's, that's part of it. Because it's a daily grind. It's a war of attrition. If you're, if you're a day-to-day -day coach uh, and then working with young people, working with anybody that, that lives and breathes and moves, uh, you, you got to have that. And I think it's just really important. So I appreciate you saying that, Coach, because I think that's something I've been dealing with. It's like, man, I need to get re-energized to get, you know, back to what I thought was my first love when it came to, you know, vocationally and career-wise. So, yeah, thank you. I appreciate that now. Uh, Coach, how have each of your experiences, you know, each of your stops, and I, and I know where you've been, uh, so how have those experiences prepared you for where you're at now as a head coach at Georgia State? Well, it's a journey, you know what I mean? And, and uh, you know, I, I've been really fortunate over the years to, uh, to just be blessed with the opportunity to work with so many really good people, both, both players, coaches, administrations, um, you know, uh, the campuses, the campus communities that I've been a part of. I, I just, it's really been a, a great journey. You know, like I said, I started out at, at Niagara and worked for a, a great person by the name of Jack Armstrong, who actually was a really young head coach. He was 26 when he got the job. Wow. He was an assist, assistant on the staff, and the head coach got let go in November of his first year there, and he became the interim coach. And, and at the end of that year, he got the interim tag removed, and then his first year as the full-time head coach is when I joined the staff. Wow. So he was maybe 27 at the time, and Jack was uh, Jack currently is the color analyst for the uh, Toronto Raptors, and he looks younger now than he did then. <laughs> um, stress. <laughs> yeah, and he was, but he was this ultra meticulous, almost excessive, compulsive, organized individual. Um, and as a result, um, it heightened the importance of the responsibilities that he had bestowed upon me. Yeah. Because he was, he wasn't a micromanager, but he did micromanage his days. What he was doing in the overall organization of the program was really tight. He wasn't over my shoulder, but and maybe he was, but maybe, uh, he felt like I was doing a good enough job that he didn't have to always comment on what was going on. But, but I did feel, like this need to do a good job for him. Number one, out of loyalty for the fact that he gave me the job, but also his nature was so meticulous that I was trying to, uh, as they say, you know, dot all my eyes and cross my teeth. Yeah. So that was good from an organizational standpoint. Then I went back to my alma mater after two years at Niagara. I, I spent five years under a guy by the name of Jim Barron. And Jim has a long reputation of being a great program builder. And at the time, St. Bonaventure was actually uh, in some uh, fiscal straits. They were struggling as an institution 
and it needed a boost, and they went and hired Jim, who was an alumnus of the school as well. They had won the NIT championship in 1977 at a time when the NIT was even bigger than it is these days. Yeah, and so he was a part of uh, you know uh, the great tradition that exists at St. Bonnie, and so now he's coming back at his alma mater. He hires me. It's my alma mater, and we're tasked with trying to rebuild a program that hadn't won in a very long time, and and uh, we were able to do that. And so, that, you know, now I'm 24, and I'm on the road recruiting. It's my first full-time job, and I'm exposed to a man who is an eternal optimist who's always going to find a way to get things done. The class is always going to be half full, and this enthusiasm and passion that he carried himself with every day really resonated with me. Like um, every player we had, he, he saw it like we're going to figure out a way to get them better. Yeah. Uh, everything, everything was, was uh, uh, filled with optimism and, mm-hmm. and enthusiasm. And, uh, and he backed it all up with tremendous work ethic. Nice. He was, he was a real grinder. Uh, and that was his reputation as a, as a player. Um, he was such a, a tough basketball player that he that he tried out for the Dallas Cowboys, you know. Wow. Um, and so he was a unique individual and a yeah. passionate man who cared about everybody. He was humble. Um, he, he created an environment and a culture where, uh, whether it was the custodians, uh, the, the the women who worked in the dining hall, everybody was important. Wow! And and so this was a great lesson for me. You know, the organization of Jack Armstrong, the passion of Jim Barron. Uh, I left Jim Barron. I left there in '97 uh, and went to Rutgers, uh, and that was a great experience. I worked with. Uh, assistant coach named Danny Hurley, who's the head coach at UConn now. We were on the staff together. Todd Kowalczyk is the head coach at Toledo, fantastic coach. And we were in the Big East uh, at a time where John Thompson was still uh, coaching and Jim Calhoun was in the prime of what he was doing. So I was, Leonard Hamilton was at Miami. There was just some great coaches in the league some great experiences. And then I got a chance to uh, broaden my recruiting contacts being in the, you know, the the tri-state area, New Jersey, New York, uh, you know, Connecticut, just being up in that area um, really uh, opened a lot of doors for me and exposed me to a lot of things. And then I got an opportunity to go to work for Rick Barnes at Texas in 1999. And the two years I spent with Rick, early on basically gave me uh, a blueprint for like that moment of, okay, if I get a job, this is how I'm going to do it. That, that was the first time I had that sense yeah. of like, all right, if you're going to do something at the, at the highest level, this is, this is that blueprint that I would be operating from. Wow. And, uh, um, you know, Rick is like, just an unbelievable man, a great friend, and uh, just had a, it's had an unbelievable impact on, on my my life. And so uh, I, I went to Siena from there, and I had four years as a young head coach. I'm 32, and 
Um, just, uh, you know, we went to an NCAA tournament. We went to an NIT. Um, I'm sort of, uh, I tell people all the time, I probably wasn't quite ready for the job. I had a reputation. I had interviewed at that point for four other head coaching jobs. So I had developed a reputation as someone who had a bright future. Um, but I wasn't, uh, uh, I probably wasn't quite as ready for the job when I got it. And so I'm learning on the job and it's a really good job and it's a really big fan base. And uh, we had our share of successes, um, but we didn't quite knock it out. So after four years there, uh, I went to Virginia with my good friend, Dave Lato, who comes from that Jim Calhoun uh, uh, background at UConn. He spent, I think, 17 years at UConn. Yeah. And so our philosophy and the things that we were doing were grounded in that. And after two years there, I spent four years with Billy Donovan. And now uh, I had developed a, a, a blueprint with Rick, and here I am with Billy, and now I'm seeing it from an even broader scope. And now I've been a head coach. I've spent two years in the ACC, and now I'm in the SEC with a guy who had just won back-to-back national championships. Wow. And I'm on the staff with Shaka Smart and um, you know Larry Shiat and Richard Patino and Billy and Mark Dagnall, who's with the OKC Thunder now, who's a future NBA head coach. So the, the culture and the, the level of coaching and the minds that I was exposed to day in and day out, and I say to young coaches all the time, anytime you get a chance to work with other great coaches, do not get territorial, do not be insecure, embrace every moment of those kinds of opportunities to grow. Don't worry about who's got the head coach's ear and any nonsense like that. Just believe in yourself and put the work in and and, and put your ego aside. And I, I think that, that, was, that was a great experience every day going into work and talking basketball and exploring how to get better and how to get our guys better. And one of the biggest influences Billy had on me is that he, he was a serial question asker like Rick, but he always wanted to know where the guys were at. Yeah. I mean, it was a yeah. daily question. Where are the guys right now? And at first, I mean, like, what do you mean? They're down in the gym. What are you talking about? <laughs> but it was, there was a constant each, at each point of the season or during the course of the calendar, where are the guys at? What is their mindset? Yeah. And trying to find that out and trying to use that information to take them from one place to where you wanted them to be. Yeah. Um, and then if they got to a place where you wanted them to be, to not be complacent about that, how do you keep them there? Yeah. Uh, and what, what could come up to lose that traction that you're gaining? Was there just a constant uh, 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 quest to keep those guys at a place where they they wrap their arms around being a part of the team, being a part of something bigger than themselves? How do we get them into that space? Yeah. Where are they at right now relative to that? What are they going through in their personal lives that might prevent them from being the best version of themselves? That sort of dialogue was always a part of our day-to-day operation at Florida, and that had a tremendous impact on 
me and the way I coach. And then I, I left there to go back to Texas and be with Rick because um, there, there's a story there, Mike. When when I when I first went to Florida, Billy within days accepted the head coaching job at the Orlando Magic. Yeah. And so he did that on a Wednesday. I had just taken the job two days prior at wow. Florida. So he had a press conference on Friday. And then that Sunday, he changed his mind and decided to stay at Florida. I actually have a website where I wrote about that, that story. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I, when, when he broke the contract or broke the agreement, yeah. To stay at Florida, uh, he was banned from taking any other NBA job for a five-year period as a result of breaking that contract. Whoa. And so, after four years at Florida, I decided to go to Texas because I didn't. I, once that five-year window was up, the, the likelihood that he was going to go back to the NBA at some point was real. So, when the opportunity presented itself for me to go to Texas, I took it yeah. because of my trust. And, and Rick and my history with him and my wife and I's love for him. And my son was born in Austin. We loved Austin. Yeah. And so that was, that was an easy decision for us to make. And, uh, and so now I'm coming back to Rick with all of those experiences that I had gained since that as a head coach in the ACC and then with Billy and that, and that group and then coming back to Texas and then we were there for four years and then uh, uh, but I was with him for eight years including the four years at Tennessee and uh, you know just uh, unbelievable coach great man and uh, you know so between he and Billy they've had the biggest influences on me in terms of um, the way I, I, I tried to build a program um, but so have uh, Dave Leto, um, Jack Armstrong, Jim Barron. There's a part of those guys um, and all of them that that uh, that I think comes out in my coaching yeah. and the way I communicate with my team, the way I communicate with the media, pretty much everything we've done. Like we even say a prayer with our team um, that I got directly from Jim Barron. Nice. And, and this was about him. And it's a simple prayer. We say a moment of silence for those less fortunate than ourselves. And we take a moment of silence. And, and the reason we do that is because it is a game. It's something we're fortunate to get the opportunity to take part in. Yeah. In the player's case, they're blessed with the opportunity to play the game they love. And there's people out there um, who would love to be in their shoes and for whatever reasons don't get to do it. And so we should be thankful. Yeah. And so that's the message that Jim is saying. He's never explained it like that. He just says a moment of silence for those less fortunate than ourselves. And it's pretty profound to me. And that's yeah. the message I try to share with, with, with my team before and after yeah. every game so that we can have that perspective. So there's so many things that I've learned from all of these guys that, uh, and so, and I think about all of them all the time when when I'm communicating with my staff and with my team, and, and uh, yeah, throughout throughout all all the responsibilities I have, and rightfully so because those are we got to grow and learn every day as coaches and as leaders and as heads of our household <laughs> more than anything. 
uh, we, we really got to learn to just grow and develop. If we stunt our growth in any way, shape, or form, that's to say we're not honoring the people who helped us. We're not honoring the people that we came along that came alongside us and collaborated with us. They just didn't expect cooperation. They wanted to collaborate, and that's what you're. That's what I'm hearing from you, Coach. I mean, wanting to know the pulse of your team at, at, at you know at length, you know day in day out, and that's something special because we sometimes we get so caught up with ourselves. What we got to do as coaches is, as here again, people of influence or whatever. We've got a lot of hats that we wear sometimes. Uh, we forget about how do they feel about it, what's going on with them. Uh, we just want to know that they're happy. But at the end of the day, when you go, you dive deeper and you dig deeper, uh, there's a connection. And uh, and I've always known when, when I've kept keeping up with your career, I've always known you to be a great communicator. And so I think that's what you're talking about, you know, communication, staying in touch, staying connected. And it's kind of odd right now, right, what we're doing, social distancing or whatever, physical distancing. Yeah. Uh, this yeah. is when we should become more sociable and more in tune with our teams and, and players and staff. And like you said, uh, Coach Armstrong, getting so close to the everybody mattered in the program. And that's so important for any coaches listening. Like everybody matters because without one of them, things may not go as smoothly and you may have to take on that responsibility you're not ready for. So, yeah, no, I appreciate you running through all that, Coach, because that was uh, it's a great learning tool for all of us listening and, and hearing what you're really saying in, in that it's about people and people help people moving on to whatever they desire and getting better because of it. So I appreciate that, man. Really, really good. Now, Coach, I want to uh, ask you, because there's always that, that uh, it's a negative term and it's a, kind of a know, slap in the face sometimes to some people in that, Oh, you're just a recruiter, uh, meaning like you can't X and O and you can't deal with, you know, interpersonal relationships or, you know what I mean? Everything that comes along with being who you are as a great communicator. Uh, what would you say, you know, uh, to people who put coaches in that kind of you're just a recruiter thing? Like how, how, do, how do you view that? Well, I, I don't look at it from the, from the vantage point of the person who puts people in that box um uh, i i look at it from the vantage point of the young coach who's coming up in the profession trying to establish themselves professionally yeah um i, I think oftentimes mike when we talk about um like growing in the profession so often i think a lot of us and i've been a part of this too make the mistake of this whole coaching growth and development in terms of division one. Yeah. And so as a result, um, when we get on these zoom calls and podcasts and such, we start talking about things relative to division one. And I think it sends a bad message to young coaches yeah. that, that that's where success is, that there's some glamorous about division one mm -hmm. and your whole path has to be about that. And so I, I think, you know, for young coaches, if in fact you desire to be a coach, which means that you want the opportunity to lead, that there's a lot of opportunities out there 
that uh, you can be successful and have a gratifying experience as a leader that don't necessarily involve being division one. Yeah. Um, there's such a small pool of opportunity in division one that if it's about coaching, don't make it about division one. Um, and, and, and again, that's, that's not to be critical of those who want to be a division one head coach and win a national championship. And that's their dream and and their goal. That's fine. Um, but so, so as it relates to recruiting, um, if it is your desire to be a successful coach, then recruiting is a part of your journey that you, you know, and, um, regardless of how people view guys who are good at recruiting, be good at it because being good at recruiting is going to keep you employed because everybody needs players and any head coach out there that's looking uh, to, to win championships, he knows he needs players. And so if you want to be employable, be comfortable with the reputation of being a recruiter. And then when you get into that position, take on the responsibility of developing as a coach. Yeah. So you can, you don't have to stay in that box, but you do have to get on someone's staff. Like if you get on someone's staff as a recruiter and you work your tail off as a coach, as a scout, on the court, that's not going to go unnoticed. It's not going to go unnoticed on the staff. It's not going to go unnoticed on the campus. And the way you interact with the other people on the campus as a professional from an administrative standpoint, whatever responsibilities you have outside of recruiting, and even if recruiting is your biggest responsibility, there's still an administrative element to that. Everything from turning in your receipts to travel to whatever you're doing, there's there's going to be compliant. There's going to be an organizational element to it, and you're going to develop a reputation as a result of the way you go about your business. Yeah. Um. And some people do a good job getting players, but they develop a bad reputation administratively. Yeah. So they wind up being viewed as someone who's not a great professional, but they're an effective recruiter, and that is a responsibility that lies on the individual. Yeah. Wow. So the, the individual has to broaden his own scope by the way he goes about his business. Yeah. If you can't trust the way he operates on a scouting report or he can't get his receipts done on time and he doesn't know the rules, um, but he's actually getting players to come to campus and he's comfortable with that, then that's on him. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I think everybody wants to get their foot in the door and if you can recruit, you're going to get your foot in a lot of doors. Yeah. If you're proving that you can do that. And from inside that door, you got an opportunity to get a lot of other things done. And that onus is on you. Wow. Man, that's real. I mean, like, it's on you to kind of shake that if you don't like it. It's on you to, uh, because I hear a lot of people say that, like, I'm not just a recruiter. I'm not just a recruiter. And I've always looked at it like, man, if you can recruit, that's great. Like. You know, I've known some great coaches, you know, X's and O's aside, you can be the greatest X's and O's guy out there. And, but if you can't bring kids in, who cares? I mean, not who cares, but you know what I mean? Like it's almost irrelevant for that program. And, uh, and so, yeah, I'm glad well, you put, put it, put it that way, coach. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Mike, but, but listen, I, I, you know, I know I've, I've come into contact with guys who complain about that and it's a real thing, you know, yeah. like, yeah, like, 
I do know that as African American, yeah, I did not have the same margin to operate without recruiting well yeah. as maybe yeah. some yeah. of my counterparts. Yeah, there are guys who do not have to be as effective in recruiting who are viewed as an asset, X and O's wise, mm. basketball wise, a wow. basketball mind. So I'm not saying that that disparity doesn't exist. Yeah. What I am saying is once you get your foot in the door, prove it. Yeah. Yeah. Stay there. Prove it. We, we know the disparity is there. Yeah. We, we did the disparity. We could talk about a bunch of things where the disparity exists. This is something we already know. We're born into that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So once you, in this boys club, once you get your foot in the door, now you get to create a level playing field. Now you don't get to whine about it because you're there. Yeah. Right. Nice. But, 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 but you, but we know that you have to be a little bit better at recruiting to get there yeah. than some guy. Yeah. That, that is a fact. Wow. That's a real complaint with some real substance. Yeah. But once you're there, if you're good, it's hard to ignore. Yeah. No, there's no, uh, you can't argue with results at the end of the day. And I think that's what we're talking about. Because reality is, especially at the level that you're at, Coach Division One, that's a results-oriented, you know, business at that point. And if you're not you're not getting results, you know, you, you're not going to last long. And, uh, you, you know, everybody's dispensable to a degree, or replaceable to a degree. And I think that's uh, that's kind of the mindset. So, yeah, I appreciate you going in like that because that's what I was looking for. <laughs> I, was, I was looking at you to go in like that. So that was great, Coach. Now, as far as building a staff, you know, pretty plainly as you can, Coach, how do you go about building a staff? Because you have a great staff with Cliff Warren, guys like that, Chris Kreider, you know, people I know. Yeah. yeah they, how, how, did you, how do you go about that? Yeah, you know, um, you know, I think that's part of the, the, you know, not my development over the years is just developing a level of clarity on what I want, what I need around me, um, and uh, what it would take to operate at the optimum level. And um, I've known Cliff for a long time. Um, but the first thing I did was from an administrative administrative standpoint, I wanted to function at a really high level day to day. Yeah. Um, as an organization, I, I wanted us to be really, really organized. Um, you know, as a component of our athletic department, I want to make sure that men's basketball is operating at a, at a truly optimum level. And so uh, the first decision that I made was I hired a guy by the name of Kyle Condon. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Kyle was a, a, an assistant to the head coach at Tennessee. And I had such a comfort level with how good this young man is. He'll be an AD someday. Wow. Um, that, I, you know, anytime there was any possibility of me being involved with a job, the first person I asked before I even asked my wife is, would you come with me? Wow. Um, and, you know, and I would judge in some cases the job based on whether or not he would come with me. Mm. Um, because he is one of those guys who understands me, understands my vision, and he also understands athletics in general. He understands uh, the operation of a basketball program, having been around Conzo Martin 
and and Bruce Pearl and those guys as a manager and then being a part of our program. So he's been a, around well-run programs by good leaders. Um, so he also understands all of those things. And so just functionally, when we touched down, I needed to have someone that could help us with our infrastructure as a program to make sure that we're operating a certain way. And then basketball-wise, I've known Cliff for so long that that was easy, uh, a guy with head coaching experience. But the big thing for me, Mike, is I wanted to have humble guys that could really function as assistants yeah. but have the ability to be head coaches one day and run their own programs. And Cliff's already proven he can do that. Yeah. Chris is, is also every bit as good um, as it relates to uh, being a guy who can can run his own program someday. Yeah. So they both bring great recruiting ties. You need that. And in general, I just wanted guys that can do everything. Recruit, yeah. Yeah. coach, uh, administrate, um, organize, and think like a head coach in my absence. If, uh, if, I, if I had to quarantine for 14 days, um, <laughs> the program would be in good hands. Yeah, and yeah. In some cases, they'd probably be better off. Yeah. So I, I got, I got, uh, and so those were uh, critical hires. I hired a strength coach um, that I knew who was an intern back at Tennessee. So these were people that I had pre-existing relationships with in a lot of ways. And, um, and so that was important to me. But I, but I needed to have leaders around me that were humble, that really cared about young people. And that's that's what I've been able to do. Like wow. Cliff Warren and Chris Kreider every day are thinking about how we can get better. Yeah. Um, they don't need me to hold them by the hand. Um, certainly, um, they need to know what I want. Yeah. But um, I, I think what happens in a program, Mike, when we talk about a staff is – when you first come together, when you're a new staff, you're a new collection working together for the first time, everything uh, belongs to you in a way. Like yeah. it's your vision, every directive, and everyone wants to know, okay, what do you want? What do you want in a player? How do you want to function? What do you want uh, our, our practices to look like? Uh, every aspect of it is yours. Yeah. Right? And eventually, as you go through that first year, it starts to become ours. Wow. Um, the language, the terminology, the vision goes from just being yours to it becoming a collective vision. Shared vision, yeah. Was, yeah. Right. And so, um, and that starts with, you know, that, that process you go through just with your staff. Yeah. And then eventually, as that starts to take hold, then the communication flows to the players in a different way. Yeah. When it, when it becomes ours as a staff, uh, when everything is we and us and ours. Um, and, you know, for, for the first six, eight months, it's like, okay, coach, what do you want me to do with this? What do you want this? How do you want this done? How do you? And, and ultimately, the, the, we were around each other enough and we communicate at a level where they where we get it. It's like, okay, this is Georgia State basketball. Yeah. This is how we're going to look. This is what we look for in a player. This is these are the things that are important for that player's character, for his ability, for uh, how he conducts himself, off the court, everything. 
um, is under one roof now. And so, um, so once you establish that, as you have turnover on your staff, it's easier to figure out yeah. how, how to find people that fit what's in place. And that's where we are now. That's fantastic, Coach. I mean, that's, uh, like you said, you can go into quarantine and still everything's going to run the way it should. And I think that's where programs aren't built on, built on one person. Programs aren't built on uh, the leader, per se, uh, so that it's not about like it's not about you. It's about us. It's not about the head coach. Like yeah, the head coach is going to get all the run, but he's going to get all the blame too. His job, his job's on the line all the time too, uh, and so that care that responsibility uh, kind of yeah. Just, it's, go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. You know, it, it's uh, my role is the leader. Yeah, but I'm a part of the team. Yeah, you know, like 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 I was saying earlier, you know, the analogy of being on a team, like, you know, you got twelve guys and they all have different roles, but one guy, his role is to lead. Maybe because he's a senior, maybe he's the best, but whatever the case may be, but everybody's important, and I think in in a program it's like that too. It's like, okay, my, being a leader is my role in the program in the organization. That doesn't make it about me. Yeah, it just means that it's my that that's my role, and, and everybody in the program has a vital role, and I've got to play mine because I'm the leader. Yeah. But but it, but 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 it's still the role I play as a part of the program. I'm not the program. Yeah, um, exactly. So exactly. Um, that's great. Now that that just putting it in perspective, just putting it in perspective, like this whole uh, pandemic and the time away has taught us like, you know, how do you stop, how do you stop a season right before the tournament starts? You know what I mean? Stuff like that. How do you, how do you just put it to a halt? And then now we all realize that as coaches, there we are sitting at home and the reality sets in, man, if we don't have players, we don't have anything. And to, to think that you're the be all and end all of your program, pretty silly because things could keep going without you. They may not go as well, or they may even go better. Who knows? But just to get the, the, the clarity in the re reality, like you talked about earlier, about how uh, y'all did a prayer, the prayer of gratitude, you know, basically. To say, hey, let's think about those who, who don't have this opportunity, who are less fortunate. Like, it, it all ties into that, is understanding, like, it's not about you. Your program isn't you. The program is the program. Yes, you're going to make it your own uh, but it was there before you, and it'll maybe there, and probably be there after you leave. So yeah, it's just really getting that perspective. So I, I appreciate you saying that, man. That was really, really good. You, you, you use the phrase "it's not about you." I mean, we really use that. It's a, it's an acronym that we use. I N A M. We call it Enam. Yeah. Um, Commander Mark McGinnis, who was a Navy SEAL, um, in Austin, Texas. Yeah. Uh, Gabe, yeah, I got that from him. I N A M simply means it's not about me. We have it on the walls. We have, you know, wristbands. I mean, that, that's something that we, we talk about a lot. It's huge. It's huge because it, it, it doesn't matter what, here again, part of life that you walk in, uh, there's bigger pictures to see, the long game. Uh, reality sometimes because we get caught up in sports and basketball because we love it. It's our vocation, but it's not who we are. There's something bigger 
And, and that kind of leads me to my next question, Coach, because we're, we're living in some crazy times right now. Some really, like I'm of the mindset, Coach, that I only believe half of what I see and none of what I hear. And that's just me. I don't tell, I don't let, I tell everybody to subscribe to that, but it's just so weird right now. And uh, given all the civil unrest, Coach, in our society, how would you suggest that we as leaders and coaches do our part in kind of bringing about change in our spaces? Well, I think uh, <clears throat> when you say leaders, I think um, who are you leading, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. We're talking about we're talking about young people, and you know, I think as coaches, as adults, um, we we are in, in a place where uh, there's a lot of confusion about who to listen to and who to trust, and yeah, and uh, even at the highest levels of leadership, you know, um, and. You know, I, I, I talk to my players a lot about learning how to compartmentalize. And, you know, that's not a word that a lot of young people actually, you know, some of the players that I really admire, like some of the greatest players, like a guy like LeBron, Kobe, I think these guys have this unbelievable ability to compartmentalize. Yeah. To, to, to take... Uh, all of the things that are on their plate, for lack of a better phrase, and put it in a and put it aside, and still be a great player. To have yeah. hundreds of millions of dollars, commercials, but actually still be able to develop in your in your in your profession on the court is a, is a is a testament to their ability uh, to compartmentalize. And I think with all the things going on in the world right now, um, we have to be able to take all of the uh, distractions out there and detach ourselves from those things Yeah, and try to prioritize what's important. And from a leadership standpoint, it's about young people and what messages we're trying to give to them. Yeah. Even at the highest level, when it comes to politics, there's so much name calling and so much stuff going on that none of us would want even our children to do. Yeah. But but we accept it from our leaders. Yeah. And so uh, I I I want to turn my focus to my children and uh, and try to and and try to spend time getting them to understand uh, an objective view of the world, how fortunate they are and try to find a way to make a difference. Um, they're not uh, the same thing that I learned from Jim Barron. I talked to my children about, I talked to my team about, do not have an overinflated concept of who you are and your place in the world. Wow. If you have some good things going for you, um, be thankful and have a level of gratitude that you're fortunate to have whatever it is you have going for you. And you and, and use that as a responsibility to give back to other people who don't have what you have. Yeah. And you know, like we're talking about John Lewis, and when John Lewis was involved in the civil rights movement, he was 24 years old. He started maybe as a teenager. Yeah. 
And when you think about that, I'm 52 and I'm like, what have I really done? <laughs> yeah. You know, Martin Luther yeah. King got killed at 39. Yeah. Youngins. These guys were young. Yeah. So like, what, what have we really done? Yeah. You know, a value, a real value. And it goes back to the point that you and I were talking about. And I think what's, what's sprung out of the social unrest is that question because there's so many people, coaches and others saying, okay, what can I do of real substance yeah. right now? Yeah. And I think we're, we're, so many of us have come together and, and gotten uh, energized by the prospects of really doing something. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because so many of us think, well, because I'm hooping, I'm doing something or I'm winning games. I'm, I'm doing something. And what we're realizing right now is that's where my passion is. I love it. But it's it's not as significant as uh, maybe I've always wanted to believe it was. Yeah. Um, or the world stopping right now has made us realize that there are things that are more important. For sure. And so... Uh, so out of that, there's become a lot of organizations and a lot of passion and an effort to get involved. And I think it's a critical time, again, going back to the word leaders, is to get young people to see the world through a lens that we didn't necessarily see it through. Like even when we talk about something like voting, I don't know if, I, if all my kids will understand, my players, my children will understand the value of the vote. Yeah, but they're thinking about it in a way that I did not think about it when I was their age, and that's a good thing. Yeah, that they've got access to more information, and there's enough things going on in the world right now. We're living in historic times, and I don't want the young people that I that I'm responsible for to let these moments pass them by, and they don't even realize what was going on around them. Wow. So. Um, so I, I do think uh, it's a great opportunity right now that we're living in. Yeah, a great no, opportunity for sure. You bring up John Lewis and what he did, especially back when he was with Martin Luther King. Like I, I read his book Walking with the Wind, and I, I bought that book, man. Probably, she's almost seventeen, sixteen years ago, and uh, looking back and, and thinking about what we're seeing now, sounds really familiar. Sounds super familiar in that we can have an even greater impact now because we're we're weaponized to a degree more as far as our voices. Uh, now it goes past our voice and goes towards it to action. And I think that's the biggest thing is like you're going to hear our voice, but you're going to see our action more than anything. That's what really has to be done. Like, in my opinion, you know, I'm in the Hispanic community and although we're 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 sitting there like in between, like, in a sense, like, what, what's happening? Like, what's going on? Could this could this happen before us as a people, if you will? You know what I mean? And thinking yeah. that, uh, well, we had to build the wall, the border, all that stuff, but it's nothing in comparison to, to what's happening in a black America. You know what I mean? And so I think about those things, and I think about our families and our futures, and I think about how you just said we're living in historical times, which tells me, it leads me to an optimism that we're going to get through this. It's just how are we going to do it? How much better are we going to be at the end? Are we going to be worse? And I think that's what every coach needs to figure out. Like we're going to get through this for sure. 
but how are we going to come out on the other end? Are we going to be bitter? Are we going to be mad? Are we going to be angry? Are we going to be strong, optimist, uh, making a difference, really impacting lives? Can we kind of uh, make that uh, the rule, the standard, not uh, pessimism and defeatism? Like, we got to really look forward to the future. So, yeah, that is great stuff, Coach. Like, I'm reflecting a lot when you're talking about all that. I'm like, yeah, 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 you know, thinking about that because that just means a lot to me as well. Uh, so, Coach, I want to ask you throughout your career, you know, kind of reflecting, uh, what have you learned about yourself to this point? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I, I, you know, uh, it's interesting because, uh, you know, uh, the way I, the way I, I grew up, I, I'd always, you know, since I was 10 years old, made my own decisions. Wow. Um, what time I came in, what school I decided to attend. Um, I'm the first person in my family to, to uh, graduate middle school. So, um, so I've been making my own decisions for, for a significant amount of time. And uh, by and large, I have uh, done well with doing that and been fairly self-confident for most of my life. And then, but like, like anyone, uh, you know, you have your share of insecurities yeah. and uncertainties about um, certain things as you go along your journey. And, you know, when I, when I got fired at Siena, it was the first time that I that I had really failed. Yeah. Um, and it was the first time that I had been confronted with, um, you know, real criticism, and uh, you know, people basically saying that you, you know, you're not adequate. Yeah. You know, um, and. I think it was the first time in my life that I ever really dealt with self-doubt, wow. you know, about whether or not I could really, I could really do this, something that I've always wanted to do, something that I dreamed of doing. Am I good enough? Am I capable? Uh, and, and so I went through a, a period of time um, with that insecurity about you know, my own capability as a leader because I spent so much time believing in myself as a leader yeah. that even as a 22-year-old graduate assistant who's basically responsible for leading his peers, I felt confident that I could do those things because I felt like that was my makeup. Yeah. And uh, and that's what I'm about and uh, and thought that, that that's where my future lied, that, uh, that I would always be a leader. And now that had come into question. And in the back of my mind, I had always kind of carried that doubt because it, it didn't, it didn't go well. Yeah. And, um, and it took a long time for me to even allow myself to consider giving it another try because that self doubt that had crept in back then. Yeah. And it wasn't until, um, the last several years 
that I had reestablished that burning desire to get back into the seat. And what I've learned, even in this one year, is that that I I am who I always thought I was. Wow. And and I had to overcome just the self-doubt of having failed. And I think that's something that we all deal with on some level or another is uh, is being able to manage that self doubt that uh, that comes from from failing, um, wow. and uh, being in a profession that you you know the, the failure is is one thing, but failing publicly is something altogether different. Yeah, for sure. And and sometimes you have an inflated idea of how people view that failure too. If you think. You, you make it bigger in other people's minds than it really is, um, you know, because of your insecurities. And so um, I learned that I have the capacity to to handle all of these things and, uh, and that I've been equipped as a result of these experiences to handle whatever it is comes my way. Wow. That's big, Coach, because you're talking about self-doubt being somewhat of a veil and just kind of, uh, you know, you, you put a veil on, it goes over your eyes sometimes. You can't see. You can see through it a little bit. You have some vision, but it's just not as clear. And when you look in the mirror, you're not seeing the, the same person that you saw before. And then to take that veil off and your true identity come back and you see it was always there. It's just I chose to put this veil over me and kind of mask myself because I, like you said publicly, it was kind of embarrassing. It was kind of tough. It was, you know, all those things that come along with the beginning to take on the, the self-doubt, maybe even some of the self-condemnation uh, that comes with that too. Like I've been there before too. And I've been in that season where you're like, man, what do I do now? I thought I was, you know, not, not the best, but I thought I was the best. <laughs> and then, uh, I mean, I went through that one time and it lasted three weeks and this other program called me up and they were like, Hey, we, we heard, we'd love to have you. And then just kept the beat going after that. Like it didn't stop. Like it, it didn't stop me. I just first had to kind of find my identity again. And I, and I, and I forfeited it to a, to a degree for those three weeks. It felt like an eternity it felt like three years, but yeah. uh, you know, I, I get what you're saying. Cause I've been there. And I'm glad you shared that because I'm sure there's a lot of listeners that have gone through that. Yeah. Fantastic, yeah. Coach. Now, That's a great analogy. Yeah, no. And I, coach, I, I, I want to ask you the last question I have is always about legacy. And, and here again, I think about you. I think about a great communicator. And, and, uh, and I think about somebody who can definitely be, bring people together uh, collectively for something that's a great uh, you know, kind of vision like we talked about now. What would you want to be said of you, Coach, when your career is all said and done? Yeah, I, I don't really think about that, Mike. Okay. You know, that, that's, that's, a, that's a hard uh, thing. You know, I think what's important to me, you know, when I, when I, was, uh, when I was growing up, I didn't have like a tr- traditional family situation. Yeah. Um, you know, my mom was a great lady and 
you know, she's she's had um, you know, she's tough. She's been through she's been through a lot. Yeah. And she uh, she she was raising uh three of us uh together uh in in the projects, you know, um, both of my brothers are deceased. Wow. And so she's had to deal with, with all of that. One of them died in police custody. The other died of, you know, full-blown AIDS. Um, and so, you know, for me, my biggest goal in life was to have a family. Yeah. And, and I've been able to do that, and that is the most important thing in the world to me. And so... Um, when I think of legacy, like somebody remembering me, I, I, I just think of like my son and my daughter, what, how they feel about me. Yeah, yeah. That's the only legacy that I'm concerned with is, you know, I want them to be proud of their dad and I want them to be prepared for the world as a result of the time, love, and investment that their mom and I have placed in them. Yeah. And, and so, you know, that, that, that's the most important thing. And certainly I want for the young people that I come into contact with on a day-to-day basis to take from their time around me how important my family is to me. And I do want people to, to, this idea of it's not about me and being humble. I do want people to think that that's real. Like, like, I, like uh, you know, do I do that? I care about other people. Yeah. And, uh, but it all centers around and starts uh, with my family for me. Like what does Emory and Kai Mm. how they view me is uh, the most important thing in the world to me. Wow. Coach, I thank you for your time. It's been real. It's been really real. And and I'm just so thankful that we finally got to do this. And, uh, man, just thank you for all your insight and your wisdom, really. And uh, so thank you so much for being on with us. Uh, thanks for having me, Mike. It's great.